In the past, I have started my sermons typically with, a, with something funny. And recently, I just haven't been able to do it. <laughs> I, there's just, I found nothing that I can comment on or make a joke about. And the, the sermon today is really no different. There are some people, and when we get into the text, you'll understand what I'm saying, who make lawyer jokes in regard to 1 John 2, 1 through 2. Some pastors do that. I don't think that's appropriate. I don't know if you know this, but Terry, the man that was just up here, is a lawyer. And so he's not in here, so I could tell jokes about lawyers at this point, but I still don't think that would be appropriate. So a dear brother of mine sent out this, this story, and I just thought it was funny. I just need some lightheartedness, and I hope you find some humor in it too before we dive into a very serious uh, section here, really the whole book of 1 John, but another very serious section in 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. And while, we're, while you're getting ready to prepare for that, you can open your Bibles to that section of God's Word or open up that blue Bible located around the seats, underneath the seats around you, flip that open to 1021, and that will bring you right to our text, 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. Anyway, here is the story that my dear brother sent me. It goes like this. One balmy day in the South Pacific, a Navy ship spied smoke coming from one of three huts on an uncharted island. Upon arriving at the shore, they were met by a shipwrecked survivor. He said, I am so glad you're here. I have been alone on this island for more than five years. The captain replied, If you're all alone on the island, why do I see three huts? The survivor said, Oh, well, I live in the one and go to church in, the, in another. The captain, a little confused, said, What about the third hut? Oh, well, that's where I used to go to church. Yeah. Pastors find that very hilarious. I'll just let you know that right now. People leave churches for just any particular reason, and obviously in that situation. <laughs> I'm not sure what the reason was, but I'm sure it was good. <laughs> First John chapter 2. We'll be looking at 2 verses 1 through 2, but I'm going to start in verse 5 just to give us some context. We've been looking at this section here for the past couple of weeks. So just let your eyes drop to verse 5 and follow along with me as I read it. The Apostle John wrote, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. And now the text we'll be looking at today, chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So this morning, if you have your 
bulletins, there's an outline on the left side. And we will consider this morning from this text three realities we must remember as Christians so that we may not sin and yet not be completely discouraged or distraught when we do commit sin. Those three things, these three realities that we must remember are our duty, our defender, and our defense. Our duty, our defender, and our defense. That's what we'll be looking at this morning. We'll begin with the first point. We must remember our duty. And our duty, I'm defining that as our responsibility before God as Christians. Our responsibility before God as Christians. We'll talk about that in a second. The Apostle John was concerned, and we've mentioned this in the past several weeks, about certain people who had associated themselves with the church and identified themselves as Christians. But their way of life, their conduct, was characterized more by walking in darkness or sin and error rather than walking in the light, or that is God's righteousness and truth. These professing Christians sunk further into darkness by denying their sin rather than confessing their sin and turning from it. And the Apostle John did not want the church to be deceived by them about what it truly means to be a Christian, someone who has fellowship with God. So he made it very clear in his letter that we're reading this morning that authentic Christians, real Christians, those who have fellowship with the God who is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all, they walk in the light, beloved. And we've looked at that. They walk in the light and they readily confess their sins. That is, they admit their sins and they agree with God about their sins. That it is evil and that it has no place in their life as children of God. And therefore, they stop sinning. As a result, Christians should be very different than this lost and sinful world that we live in. A world, beloved, that sadly glorifies and celebrates sin. Even celebrating the practice, the ongoing practice of sin. It is a world that is lacking in shame and in sorrow for their rebellion against their Creator, against God. But as the Apostle John acknowledged the reality of sin for Christians in verses 7-10, through 10, we just read it, not as a way of life, but nonetheless, it is a reality. Christians do sin. That is true. And in connection with their sin, he also reminded the church of Jesus' cleansing blood and God's forgiveness. In light of all that, John did not want them to then think that the reality of sin in a Christian's life is somehow acceptable, okay. Because after all, Jesus has got it covered and God will forgive us anyway. So John comes at the issue again, wanting to remove any possible confusion or misunderstanding among his readers, about what he just wrote in those preceding verses. 
And that brings us right into 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. Look back at the text with me. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you, what? May not sin. He addressed his readers as little children, which is, is not a put down by the Apostle John, but it is a warm expression of affection and intimacy. In fact, John heard those very words from the Lord Jesus Christ on the eve of his crucifixion in John 13:33. Jesus addressed his disciples as his little children. Little children here is being used as a, a term of endearment. Like I might say, sweetie pie or pumpkin. I've never quite understood how pumpkin is a term of endearment. It seems like an insult, but some people use it. Baby, I don't know. These are, these are terms of endearment. It's, it's showing care for his people. He, he cares greatly about the spiritual well-being of these people, of these Christians, of this church. He acted to them like a loving father. Think of it that way, like a loving father. He uses the phrase a total of seven times, little children, in 1 John. And what follows the phrase is always something very important for that church to hear. Let me give you a few examples just so you understand. 1 John 2.28, there John says, And now, little children, abide in Him, in Christ, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. 1 John 3, 7-8 Little children, let no one deceive you. For whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. 1 John 3, 18 Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Finally, 1 John 5.21 Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Back to 1 John 2.1 Here he says, for the first time in this letter, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. John is saying, please, Listen, my dear children, the aim or purpose of your life as Christians should be to not sin. To not sin. In fact, it is your responsibility, your duty as children of God, those who have fellowship with God who is light, And in Him, there is no darkness at all. It is your responsibility to put away, abandon, turn from any and all forms of unrighteousness or darkness or sin in your life. And continually walk in the light, living according to God's truth and righteousness. I have heard people, usually outside of Christianity, 
criticize the faith, criticize Christians and Christianity by raising the issue of professing Christians, those who say they're Christians, these Christians that they know, who regularly sin, or worse yet, live in sin, live in sin, beloved. As an example, having a live-in partner, having a relationship with someone outside of marriage, a physical relationship, and yet continue to profess being a Christian who has fellowship with God, who is light and in whom is no darkness at all. They bring up these people. And they bring up what they say. And typically, they, these professing Christians who regularly sin and live in sin, they like to say things like this. Maybe you've heard it. Maybe you've seen it on a, a bumper sticker. Hey, I'm not perfect. I'm just forgiven. So, is that the Christian life according to the Bible? A life characterized more by unrighteousness than righteousness? A life that quickly grabs for forgiveness but is unwilling to let go of sin? Is that the Christian life? Is that what being a Christian is all about? Beloved, we are not forgiven by God so that we can go on with our lives sinning and not worry about it. We have been bought, purchased with a price, with the sinless blood of Jesus Christ. And so the Scriptures tell us we therefore are to glorify, honor God in our body. 1 Corinthians 6.20 To honor Him with our very lives in everything that we do. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Paul says in Titus 2.14 that it was Jesus who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. And get this, beloved, and to purify to conform them to the image of Jesus Christ. Beloved, Jesus was sinless. He practiced righteousness. Jesus gave up His life to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession. A people that He owns. A people that He purchased with His own blood. That He might make them holy. And it goes on to say, who are zealous for good works. Paul's not the only one that talks about this. The Apostle Peter also says in 1 Peter 1, verses 14-16, through 16, here's his exhortation, as obedient children, as obedient children, children of God, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as He who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. For it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. In his letter to the Romans, Paul addressed those who 
might use the incredible truth about forgiveness of sins through Christ's sacrifice, God's glorious grace to sinners, they might use that grace as an excuse to continue sinning. And Paul simply says this in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? That grace will cover it? That grace will rise up and wipe it away? So should we just keep on sinning? What does the Apostle Paul say? By no means! Exclamation point! Are you kidding me? How can we who died to sin still live in it? And he goes on to explain that as we move through that, we move through that passage in Romans 6. Those who have died with Christ, those who have been united with Christ, are to be dead to sin, no longer being under its mastery or enslavement. They are to say no to sin and use their very lives as instruments of God's righteousness. We should not, as Christians, and must not, sin. For God, through the cross of Christ, has set us free, if we are Christians, from sin's dominating, enslaving power so that we might live for Him. We might actually live for His glory. Live to honor Him. Which means we should not make nor allow room for sin in our lives in any way or in any manner. Sin should not be welcome to reside or live in our hearts, for there is no tolerable or insignificant sin to God. He absolutely hates all of it. He hates it. And beloved, as Christians who have fellowship with this God, we must hate it too. We must hate it too. One writer says this regarding 1 John. The writer, the Apostle John, sees the chance to call upon his followers to repudiate sin entirely, to reject it. John is not suggesting by this the possibility of a or completely sinless existence. Rather, he is pleading for enunciation of the disposition toward sinfulness that issues in specific acts of wrongdoing. Here, let me put it in maybe some more simple words. He is saying, abandon any thinking in your mind or in your heart that makes it okay for you to sin. Repudiate it. It's not okay. So I have some application here. Do you think, as a Christian, do you think of it as your duty or responsibility to abstain from sin? Do you think about that? Do you think it's your responsibility? And in thinking through that responsibility, are you proactive or are you reactive? In that regard, I mean, proactive means I... 
I have set my mind this day to not sinning. I will do whatever it takes to keep from sinning. I will be close with my Lord. I will remind myself of the Gospel. I will rely on the strength of the Spirit. I will cast out doubt and believe that I am dead to sin. I will not go places that tempt me to sin. I will not involve myself in any way with something that would bring me to the place of sin. Or are you reactive? You sin, and then you think about, I really shouldn't be doing this. How about this? Do you ever examine your life? Or ask others, to examine your life like your spouse who knows you better than anyone. That's right. So it's always dangerous to ask. Or maybe if you don't have a spouse, a brother, a dear and close brother or sister in the Lord. Do you ask them to examine your life? Do you examine your own life regularly? in regard to sin, that you might identify sin and weed it out, since it is your responsibility and duty as those who have fellowship with God who is light and in Him is no darkness at all, to not sin, to weed it out of your life, to walk in truth and righteousness. It is your responsibility and it is mine as a Christian. You know, We have no problem in the church examining other people's lives. And we are excellent at finding sin in their lives. We can smell it from a mile away. Huh. But what about our own sin? Beloved, the church would be much better off. Marriages would be much better off if husband and wife just spent some good quality time examining their own sin and rooting it out of their lives instead of always finding sin in their partner or finding sin in someone else in the church. You think? Let me ask you this. Do you ask God for help in this area? By that I mean, God, would you give me sensitivity and awareness of my sin? Would you help me rightly know and define sin in my life? Because in the world, beloved, that we live, they have redefined sin, as we talked about the last couple of weeks. They've redefined it, and our minds become corrupted. And so what God calls sin, we no longer call sin. God, write my mind. Help me identify where sin is in my life. It really is an affront to you. It is vile. It is wicked. I've accepted it. But you don't accept it, therefore I do not want to accept it. Do we pray for that, beloved? Do we pray? You know, listen, we pray for a lot of things, but it is rare and infrequent that I hear a believer pray to God like this, Father, would you please open my eyes to my sin? Would you please bring another brother or sister into my life that could come alongside me? in confidence and help me identify sin in my life that would help me weed it out. Father, make me aware of sin I'm not even aware of. 
Father, may I rely on the strength of the cross in Your Spirit to say no to sin. Do we pray like that? Beloved, I must confess. You know, I have to preach these things to myself. I was thinking, when's the last time you prayed like that, Jeremy? We need to do it. We need to do it because we need to remember that it is our duty. It is our duty to not sin. By the way, let me ask you this. Do you act as if your duty is a part-time responsibility? By that I mean, you know, around church people. Oh yeah, of course, I have a responsibility to be a good person, to not sin. But around other people or by yourself, you're no longer on duty? As Christians, we are like cops in this sense. Hold on. In this sense, we are never off duty in regard to our responsibility to weed sin out of our lives. Cops are never off duty. They can be off duty, but they're never really off duty. They're always responsible. Christians are never off duty. Whether you're by yourself, in your home, in this place, at work, we always maintain that duty and responsibility to be crucifying sin in our life. Crushing it by the power of the cross and faith in what Jesus has done. As Christians, beloved, we must remain diligent to remove sin from our lives. One writer said this, It might be helpful to remember its easy statement. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. You understand? Sin's always on duty. Sin never sleeps. And sin's responsibility is simply this, to destroy you and those around you. So we must always be vigilant. We must remember our responsibility. Back to 1 John 2, 1. One writer says this as we transition here. He says, Whereas in the first part of this verse that we just looked at, John is anticipating a too lenient an attitude towards sin. But in this second half of the verse, he is countering the possibility of too harsh of a view towards sin. And that brings us to our second point, our defender. Our defender. Let's look at the text together. This is glorious. First John 2, 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Beloved, this is, like I said, a glorious passage that expresses the deep concern and care that the Apostle John has for his Christian readers. John wanted to make it crystal clear that sin should have no place in the Christian's life. But he also knew that for the time being, that is, in this life as opposed to the life to come, sin is, as one writer said, an ever-present possibility for the believer. Sin is an ever-present possibility for the believer. In fact, that phrase, if anyone does sin, it's not just a hypothetical or remote possibility that John's just kind of throwing out there to kind of grab their attention. But based on the the construction in, in the Greek of this sentence, in the original 
One writer says the statement could be understood this way, and this might be helpful to you. But if anyone does sin, and you will, and you will, we have an advocate with the Father. That's how you could understand that. But if anyone does sin, and sadly you will, we have an advocate with the Father. So we should take our duty, beloved, to not sin very seriously. But guess what? When we fail and we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, John says. Now before we talk about the identity of the advocate, let's quickly talk about what an advocate is in this context and why we need one. Why we need one. The original word in the Greek that is translated advocate in many of our English Bibles, okay, including the ESV that we use here, basically means this. Basically means this. One who is summoned to the side of another to provide them aid or help. Let me read that again. This word basically means, in its original word in the Greek, one who is summoned to the side of another to provide them aid or help. The same Greek word is used in John 14:16 when Jesus refers to the fact that he is going to send the Holy Spirit. John 14:16. There it says, Jesus is saying this, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another See that word helper? Same Greek word. Greek word there is translated helper. In 1 John, it's translated advocate. Advocate. Okay. When we consider how the original Greek word was used in ancient documents. So how did they use that word when they wrote it, when they used it in their letters and what they were writing? One writer says this. The aid that this person is summoned to come and bring, the aid in question varies according to the context. But the sense of acting as an advocate or intercessor, particularly in the setting of a law court, is often present. In other words, when they look at that word in the ancient documents and they see how that original Greek word was used, it is defined, the aid is defined by the context, but it is often in the context of an advocate or an intercessor, and especially in the setting of a a legal situation or a law court. Therefore, the word advocate is chosen by many Bible translators for 1 John 2.1 because they believe it is the English word that best represents the Greek word in this context. In this context. The English word advocate, if we just look at that word by itself in the English, can be understood as someone who acts or intercedes on behalf of another. Okay, So that's very close to that original definition. Someone who acts or intercedes on behalf of another or also as a legal representative, like a defense lawyer who pleads another's case in a legal forum like a courtroom. The NIV, the New International Version that some of you have, in an attempt to communicate that idea, translate 1 John 2.1 like this. And now you'll understand maybe why they do that. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks 
to the Father in our defense. Now I want to show you something. You see the bold there, one who speaks in our defense? That's them translating the one Greek word, advocate. But they're trying to give meaning or help you understand what that all communicates. So one who speaks in our defense, just one word in the Greek, advocate. In our English translations in the ESV and such. This is why Jesus has been likened or compared to a defense attorney for the Christian. This is why. This is why sometimes you'll hear people say that. So Jesus Christ is the Christian's advocate or defender. Or defender. But why, as a Christian, beloved, do I need to be defended? Why do I need an advocate? Well... In the just courtroom of God, if we're taking all these pictures and these legal proceedings and such, and just stick with me, if you will, in the just courtroom of God, sin, sin, any and all sin, is considered a breach or violation of God's holiness and righteousness. And it is worthy, any and all sin, of God's condemnation and His wrath. And his wrath. God, beloved, is just. He is just, and therefore, he cannot ignore sin or let people off the hook for their sin. He will not look the other way. He cannot be bought off. He will not act unjustly like some of our earthly judges have and unfortunately still do. As a consequence of our sin, we become, in a sense, defendants in God's courtroom. Defendants in God's courtroom. It is worth noting, by the way, that Satan is referred to in Revelation 12, chapter 10, as the accuser of our brothers who accuses them day and night before our God. The accuser of the brothers. The accuser of Christians. And this has been understood by many, as Satan bringing the believer's sins before God like a prosecutor in a courtroom. Satan saying something like this, they are guilty, judge. They are guilty. And here are the facts that prove my case. They must be condemned. You must punish them for their crimes for their sins. But according to 1 John 2.1, if we, that is true Christians, sin, we need not become distressed. Do you know why? Because we have the best defense attorney in the world. In the world, beloved. You know what I'm talking about? You know how you always see rich people get off for things they, a poor person would never have gotten off for? And we say the reason why is they have bought the best defense they possibly can? Well, they use all kinds of shenanigans and loopholes in the law to get their guilty clients off. But Jesus is a little bit different. But He is the superior defense attorney. He is 
perfectly righteous, John tells us. He comes to our aid and He pleads on our behalf before the righteous and holy judge, God the Father. And Satan stands and condemns the sinner. And Jesus Christ stands and defends the sinner. But on what grounds And I talked about this a little bit just now. On what grounds can Jesus defend the sinner? Does He simply plead with God to forego or to give up His justice for the sake of love? Oh God, please, forget about your justice. Aren't you just about love? Is that how He does it? Or does Jesus find some technicality or loophole in in God's law? And that's how He gets the sinner off the hook. No, beloved. Our defender is righteous and therefore so is His defense. And that brings us to point three. Our defense. Our defense. Look back at the text with me. 1 John 2.2 John says, He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only but also for the sins of of the whole world. Let's start by considering that big word, propitiation. How many of you have used that word in the last week? Okay. How about the last month? Right. Okay, that is a unique word that we don't use very often. Well, let me first define it generally, okay? Because it's important. It's an important word. It's in the Bible. John will use it again later on in his letter, and you need to understand it. Propitiation is, an, and I'm just defining it generally, is an offering, listen closely, is an offering or sacrifice that turns away wrath and appeases, that is, it pacifies or satisfies the one to whom the offering or sacrifice is made. In ancient pagan religions, the original Greek word, I won't try to pronounce it, which is translated propitiation in our English or many English Bibles, that original word that's behind that word propitiation was used to describe an offering or sacrifice that was made to the gods. To the gods, not real gods, but they're fantasy gods. And they did this in order to make them happy or to turn away their anger. Because apparently these gods would get angry at any particular time and for any particular reason, and so they would need to be appeased, satisfied. And so the people would make some offering or sacrifice in hopes that the wrath of these gods would be averted and they would then again find favor with these gods. They made a propitiation. And 1 John 2.2, now let's bring it to the one true God, and back to the Bible. 1 John 2.2, 2, Jesus. Jesus is said to be the propitiation for our sins. So propitiation in this context, listen closely, is the offering or sacrifice of Jesus Himself made for sins that turns away God's wrath and appeases Him. 
Jesus did not present a sacrifice, beloved. He is that sacrifice. He is that sacrifice. He is the very sacrifice that satisfies God. God hates sin. Right? That's what the Bible says. We would do well to not forget that. God hates sin and His wrath is directed against it. If He did not hate sin, beloved, if we had a God that did not hate sin, then He would not be truly holy. He would not be entirely righteous. He would not be perfectly just. He would be more like humanity. And therefore, He would not be a God worth worshiping. Nor would He be the God that has defined Himself for us in the Scriptures. God is just. He hates sin. And sin must be punished. So that presents a huge problem for sinners. Any sinners out there? A few. Okay. All of you. How can God's justice be satisfied? How can God's justice be satisfied? How can He be appeased and yet... At the same time, how can we as sinners avoid His holy wrath against our sin? That's the issue. That's the problem. Well, I couldn't have solved it, but God did. There is only one way, beloved. It is Jesus at the cross became the very sacrifice or offering to God. He acted in the sinner's place as the substitute, as the sinner's substitute, and He absorbed God's holy wrath. He absorbed it against their sin so that God might be fully satisfied in punishing the sin and at the same time provide a way, the only way, for the believing sinner to avoid God's holy wrath and be reconciled back to a holy God, their Creator. Wow. It is Paul, by way of reminder, who says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, that it is Jesus, beloved, it is Jesus who rescues us. He rescues us from the wrath to come. Paul adds in, again in Romans 5.9 that by the death of Jesus, by the death of Jesus, beloved, we will be saved from the wrath of God. And it is John, the Apostle John, the same one who wrote 1 John, who writes this in his Gospel in chapter 3, verse 36, that for those who reject Jesus, the wrath of God remains on them. It remains. Did you hear that? Jesus Christ is the one and the only one who righteously defends the Christian, who comes to their aid when they sin by presenting Himself as their defense before God the Father who then looks upon the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. He is that sacrifice. He looks 
at His Son and is satisfied, completely satisfied because His justice has been perfectly fulfilled for the sins were punished in Jesus. One writer adds this, Our personal advocate doesn't just plead our case. Emphatically, he is our case. He is our case. He is our defense. Just in case you might get the wrong idea, hopefully you won't, but I want to make sure I'm clear. Jesus does not act like some big brother defending his younger brother against an irate and out-of-control drunk father. That is not what's going on here. Jesus is not stepping in and going, wait a minute, God, you're, whoa, you're out of control. Hold on, I got you covered. God, whoa, 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 don't, don't unleash your wrath. That's not the idea at all. Do you remember? It was God's idea. For God so loved the world that He, He sent His Son. He saw the problem. He knew the problem. Acts 2.23, it was His predetermined plan. It was God's plan that Jesus should die. God the Father and Jesus' Son, they're in this thing together. They're in this thing together. God Himself provided the solution to our sin problem. That solution is Jesus Christ. Look back at the text. I like this. 1 John 2, 2, just a little word. It says, He is, He is, don't miss it, He is the propitiation for our sins. Not was, but is. And it's a verb in the present tense. So let me tell you what that means. It just means this. He was and is and will continue to be forevermore, for all eternity the propitiation for our sins. He is our perfect defense before God regarding our sins against Him. One writer adds this, just in light of all that, I thought it was good, so I wanted you to hear it. Just remember that courtroom setting. If we sin, ha! Here comes the prosecutor, Satan. Here comes the prosecutor, so-and-so sinned! So-and-so sinned! You know, it's not like Satan has to work real hard at this, right? To find the charges. So-and-so, let's make it hard for him. That's what the beginning of 1 John says. Let's make it hard for him. So-and-so sinned! The advocate comes in and says, I paid for that sin. I paid for that sin. And He ever lives to intercede before the bar of God on our behalf because God was satisfied with His payment. That's why we worship. That's why we worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to Hebrews 7.25. Consequently, He, that is Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God, don't miss it, through Him. Those who draw near to God, not on their own, 
not through some other God, through Him. Since He always lives, He always lives to make intercession for them. Unlike the human priests that that the writer of Hebrews was describing here in this chapter, in these human priests in Judaism who would present their offering to God on behalf of the people for their sin, but had to constantly be replaced. You know why? Because they died. Because they were human beings, so they died. Unlike that, the resurrected Jesus Christ lives forever. He lives forever. Therefore, He permanently and continually intercedes on behalf of His people as He continually presents Himself as the propitiation for their sins. You see that? Look back at the text one more time. 1 John 2.2, it says, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Now this last part of this sentence, this phrase, for the sins of the whole world, this is debated among Bible scholars about exactly what it means and the implications of that passage. And we just, you know, we're not going to get into it today. We will certainly come back to it, but not today. But what I do want you to consider this morning, something that is not debated in regard to this passage, is this. It is this. It is the reality that Jesus is the only propitiation for sins. He is the only propitiation for sins. There is no other sacrifice that will satisfy God's justice regarding our sin. There is no other sacrifice. In other words, the world of humanity has no proper defense before God without Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the only defender or advocate and defense or propitiation that God will listen to and gladly accept. He is the only one. Those who choose to live their own life in their own way instead of giving their lives to Jesus will someday stand before God at that thing that we call the judgment. That's how the Bible refers to it. And they will have to offer up their own defense, beloved. Their own defense before God for their sins. And at that moment, in all their pride and arrogance and rebellion on earth, it will all be crushed at that moment. For they will realize and forever know that defending yourself before a holy God is the biggest mistake any human being can ever make. One writer says it this way. John is saying there is no other satisfactory sacrifice for sin to avert the judgment of God except Jesus Christ. The sacrificial death and shed blood of Jesus Christ was the only acceptable, God-appeasing sacrifice that could have been offered to a holy 
God. There are not many paths to God. Jesus, beloved, Jesus is the only way. Paul says it simply like this in 1 Timothy 2.5. For there is one God, not many, and there is one mediator, one go-between, one intercessor between God and men. And that is the man, Christ Jesus. Beloved, as I conclude, as Christians, we must continually, beloved, we must continually remember our duty, our responsibility to renounce sin, to renounce it and make it our purpose in life. People are always wandering around, wondering about their purpose in life. Here it is, as a Christian, don't sin. How's that for a purpose? Don't sin. Do you know that alone would resolve, I dare say all, but a majority of our problems in this world? Renounce sin. Make it our purpose in life to do away with it, to refuse to give in to it. But you know what? When we fail, and we will, and we will, we must then remember that it is Jesus who is there, right there, beloved, and He comes to our aid as our advocate, as our defender, and He presents Himself to God as our defense, the propitiation for our sin. Therefore, Jesus is the perfect provision, the only provision that the Christian needs and must have. Let's pray. Father God, I I pray for those who sit here and do not have a relationship with Your Son, Jesus Christ. They have not given their life to Him. They have not placed their faith in His sacrifice. They have not received Him as their Lord or Savior. And what that means is that they have no defender. And they have no defense for their sin. And they abide and remain under your wrath because you are a just and holy God. And you will not tolerate sin. You oppose it. You cannot look the other way. Father, I pray that they would see that very terrible position that they are in and flee, run as fast as they can to the cross of Jesus Christ, casting themselves upon it. And there they will find mercy and grace. And there they will find one, only one who gave His life that they might be redeemed and forgiven and forever reconciled back to You For it is He and He alone, Father, Your Son, our Savior, that paid with His life for sins and has made it possible for a sinful people to be restored to their holy Creator. Father, I pray that You would work 
in a powerful way through Your Spirit and Your Word this morning to convict that You might grant repentance, that they might come to their senses, and that they might turn from a life of sin and rebellion and independence and cast themselves upon Jesus Christ that they might be saved. Father, for the Christian, Father, help us to really think seriously about this passage and and just the black and white statements that John continues to make. Father, we think about a lot of things. We're probably thinking about a lot of things right now. But may we think about this thing. John writes this that we as Christians may not sin. Father, may that be our purpose. May that be our intention today and tomorrow and the weeks and the months to come. Not in our own strength. We have none. We can't fight sin off. But if we have been united with Christ, and we have if we are Christians, we have the power in Christ to say no to sin. To reject it. To crush it. To put it off. And to walk in the righteousness of the Spirit that now resides inside of us as Your children. Father, may that be our aim. May that be our intention. And yet, Lord, we know living in this fallen world, in this yet fully not redeemed body yet, not glorified, still having the remnants of our flesh and, and sin, all that goes on with that, Father, we sin. We still sin. And if it were not for the Advocate, if it were not for His propitiation, then we would face Your condemnation. And yet Paul says clearly, there is no condemnation. There is none for those who are in Jesus Christ. Why? Because He comes to our aid. He is there by our side. He is our defender. And He is our very defense. May we glory in that. May we rejoice in that. May we tell ourselves that. May we find hope in that. And may we tell somebody else about it. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.